Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. Until I was 14 years old, I never had any sense of stability or like comfort and peace of a knowing. Like, you know that knowing of like this where I get to go to sleep tonight? I didn't have that until I was like, a teenager. I stood up in front of a whole courtroom, in front of her, and a judge. I was in his chambers prior to, I remember all this, and I had to look my mom in her face and say, I no longer want you to be my mom anymore. And I severed her rights, and that's what allowed me to get adopted. If I care about people, which I do care about people, outside of what this person did to me, if I'd met them and I didn't know them, what does the compassionate heart of me need this person to know or learn or improve upon? And it gave me a chance to create a space for first forgiveness, then help. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Anthony Trucks. I have done a lot of podcasts with people who have been through tough times and came out the other end even better, but this interview tops the cake. Anthony started as a foster child in the worst of circumstances. When I tell you the worst, I mean horrific, deplorable circumstances, but he made it through tremendous odds all the way to the NFL. This story will inspire you to never give up on your dreams. I love this interview. I love Anthony. I learned so much. Fantastic episode. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Anthony Trucks. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Happy to be here. Well, you know, you are a happy guy, or at least you play one on TV. But (laughs) you are, in doing the research for this show, you have been through more shit than I have seen, honestly, anybody go through. And I've done hundreds of interviews now. So... Uh, if it's cool with you, I don't want to drag you through the mud here, but I think for context, people need to understand that life was not always so sunny for you. So I want to start with your mom. Your mom puts you and your three siblings into uh, foster care much earlier, obviously, in your life. Yeah. For those of us that have no clue on what that's like. Could you paint a picture of what it was like growing up in that environment? 
Yeah, man. Well, there's two sides. I think one's the experiential, like, you know, in terms of what it actually tangibly was, and one's the emotional side. So, you know, actual tangible, she just was like, I don't want my kids anymore. And she gave us to the system. And, you know, you go and live with these people that you don't know, that don't know you. Uh, and and we are what's called a paycheck. It's the best way to explain. It. This is back in 1986 when I first went into the system. So we didn't have like phones and there was nobody taping stuff. And you had some really heinous people. And so emotionally, it felt horrible. Like it's the feeling that anybody can relate to of like I don't belong, I don't feel wanted, don't feel loved, uh, or I'm just fearful, like scared and, and lost. Like that was the start of my emotional, you know, or just experience of life. And then what's even worse, man, is you got some people doing some crazy things. So. Like I can remember vividly the very first house I went to. They were actually decent people, but like the next four houses were horrible before I landed in my sixth. And so like one, they'd put me in a chicken coop and they'd force me to chase these chickens around and catch one. And if I could catch one at like, you know, four years old, I get to eat that night. And if not, I wouldn't get to eat. I ended up like sneaking out of the, the bed to go like try to you know climb on the counter and, and get food. And I would hoard food and I'd get beat when they'd find it. The one house put me in shopping carts. It pushed me down hills towards moving traffic. Uh, I never got hit, thankfully, but they kept on doing it. And it was just like this weird, torturous thing. And then one family made me like, I sat in the corner. They, they forced, forced me to sit on the ground and lick the bottom of the kid's shoes in the neighborhood to like my tongue bled. And this is all before six. So I had like both a duality of I don't feel like I matter. And I, I you know, people that my own mom doesn't love me, got rid of me. I don't know where my siblings are at. Like I'm just lost. And the people taking care of me are just horrible people. And you can go and tell the social worker like, hey, they're doing this. But then nobody believes that back then. Like that. Why would anybody make you lick people's shoes? Like that's how weird it is. And as a grown man now, man, it just it sucks. And for a lot of years, I was pissed off. Uh, but then I finally, at six years old, ended up in a family. It's my family now. Unique dynamic is we were really, really poor growing up. I was the only black person in an all-white family in a non-diverse area. So going to school was horrible because I'd get called, you know, racial slurs by kids all the time. Going home, I had my first foster dad in that house, a drunk, used to beat me, beat my mom. It's a lot of turmoil. So the best way to explain it, man, is like I, until I was 14 years old, I never had any sense of stability or like comfort and peace of a knowing. Like, you know, that knowing of like this where I get to go to sleep tonight. I didn't have that until I was like a teenager. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So there's a couple of things that you said that are just, I'm just trying to understand this. In your estimation, and I know that you don't know the answer to this, but in your estimation, what's the motivation behind why somebody becomes a foster parent? Let's start there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's funny that they're changing the name to resource parents. And I it's funny. I think they're doing it because there's such a negative connotation to it. Sure, I bet. Uh -huh. And it is what it is, the world we live in. But the thing is, I think so, there's two types. There are some phenomenal foster parents. My, my adoptive mom in that family, in the last house, she's amazing, right? There's, there's amazing people out there who genuinely are trying to be there for the kids to raise them. And then you got people that it's a paycheck. And the motivation, I think, is financial for a lot of folks because if you got a kid uh, who just got to kind of like, kind of feed them, maybe just as long as it doesn't die, like you get paid for this kid. So I'd have houses where they get paychecks and they wouldn't give me food. They wouldn't clothe me properly. But I heard that when I showed up to my last foster home, I was in um I was in a black like halter top and like purple corduroys that didn't like fit my that weren't like you know, they're flooding my legs and like boots that didn't fit. Like 100% looked like they went to the, the the dollar store, grabbed some stuff, and threw it on me because they wanted to pocket as much money as they could. So the got it. Got it. So it's so it's simply I didn't understand that. I didn't know how it works. So basically, they're getting paid if they get. Five hundred bucks, thousand dollars, whatever it is, the less they give to you, 
the Almost more dead. they get to keep. And so you simply are not to say this, this is uh, bad, but you're like almost like cattle. You're literally, yeah. you're, there's literally a price on your head. Yeah. Um, okay. There's people well, that like last thing people age out. The worst part is kids turn 18. Parents don't get paid. They kick them out of the house. My little brother got kicked out of the house. And then because he turned, Oh, because he turned 18 and there was no more profit, more profit. Then this is why 50% of the homeless population spent time in foster care. They, they age out. It's called aging out of the system. And then they get kicked out of houses all the time. Still, this happens. Wow. I never realized that. So basically, okay, let me make sure I got this right. So basically what happens is they, people bounce around from, from place to place. They get paid for taking care of the kid, 18 years old, no more check. Kids got to go somewhere. He has no idea where to go. He's been through, he's been through absolute hell or she's been through absolute hell. Where do they go? They wind up on the streets. So yeah. there's a significant amount of homelessness that comes from this. I did not know that. Oh yeah. And on top uh, of that, 75% of inmates in, in prison in America are former foster kids. So they end up in jail too, man. Okay. Well, we're going to get into why that did not happen for you because that it, it's sort of, you've, you have defied gravity with your life and we're going to get into that, but there's a few things that you said that I want to touch on. One is you mentioned that around, at around 14 years old, you were adopted by an all white, uh, they weren't wealthy, they were poor, but they were a loving, at least family. How did you see white people at that stage of your life? Because I'm assuming that your world was completely was completely African-American. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're in a white world. Like, like when I think about my little white ass showing up in like, you know, in, in a, in a completely black environment, just being real, that would be really difficult for me. And, and it's nothing with black. It could be Chinese. It's just yeah. completely different than I was used to. So what was that like for you? Yeah, interestingly, so I got with this family when I was six. So the majority of my like, you know, we'll call it developmental, you know, years I was with them. So I, I knew I was black. We'd go to restaurants and it'd be like, you know, table <laughs> for six. And it's like, there's seven of us, you know, it's just, there's always a, a difference. So I knew, and at school I had the issues. So the, the dynamic was interesting because I didn't, you, you just don't feel like it's, when you're not adopted. So any day you could be taken away. So it's like, ah, and then, yeah, you, you go through the situation of it just, it feels and looks funny for a lot of years. No, it accepts it. It looks weird. Like you say, that's my dad. He looks like Homer in real life. It's like, it's just an interesting, you know, world. So at 14, here's the thing. I get adopted at 14 play football. The interesting thing, which may not even make sense for a lot of people is like, I wasn't accustomed to black community. That was the dynamic. I was- Why? Because because, because you were, but that was at 14 though. Your whole world prior to that was black, right? Oh, I was six to six to 14 was all white family. Oh, I thought this was the only white family. Well, no. So I was, I was bouncing around from three till six. So my adopted, my real mom is white. So I was always in a white family. My real dad was gone. He's obviously a black guy. So for three years, it was all black families. And then one white family at six years old, I was with them for eight years. So I was adopted at 14. So most of my developmental years were all around white America. And I didn't, I, I didn't have a sense, like all my best friends to this day are all white guys. I don't have like old school black buddies. It's just, I got friends that are black, but it's not like I've known them since second grade, like my core friends. Do you feel more white or feel more black? It's very interesting. I, I feel 100% as a black man. That's not even a question because I've had a far, far too many black moments to not feel like a black man. <laughs> uh, it's just, we'll call it, I've been called uh, Afro penis at the airport. I've been run off roads and called, you know, a nigger on the road. Like you just, it's-, so, it's Okay, the, so you can't not be black when you are black. Not. 
Yeah, I mean, it depends. It. I mean, it's hard to, to, you know, depends on if you tuck yourself away in like the middle of Atlanta, maybe you never go outside of it. That's possible. But for me, like I knew I was a black guy, but white American, like it, it's, uh, I have a different perspective than most people that that look like me. And because of just because my upbringing, my experience, what I've learned, a different kind of compassion, a different kind of, um, no anger towards it, but a different understanding is the best way to explain it. And uh, and yeah, man. So So when I got around, honestly, for the first time, black people, I didn't fit because I talk like this. I got called an Oreo when I was a kid all the time. Like, you know, like it was just, I didn't, I didn't understand the food choices. I was like, why are we putting hot sauce on everything right now? Like, right. I, I grew up with macaroni and cheese and hot dogs. Right. And it, I was aware of it, but it was a fish out of water. Like it was like, it was like getting, going from like this fresh water to seawater was vastly different, but I found my groove. I understood who I was, where I stood in society. And I, I, I got to my footing, we'll call it. But I definitely wouldn't say I feel more white just because I grew up with white people. I just have a different lens at which I see the world because I grew up with white people. You know, it's interesting. I spent um, I spent four months uh, last year living. I, I, I accomplished a bucket list, and I wanted to go li- try living in Italy. So I went uh, with my family. We moved to Florence for a few months, and. You know, when you think of Italy, you think of Italians and talking with the hands and the food and the whole thing, and they do that. But what is bizarre is when you run into somebody who is like Korean or Japanese, but was raised in Rome. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah. you see this, like, it's like this mind fuck with your head where they're like talking with their hands and like, you got to try this pasta. And you're like, whoa, like, it, it, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so nature and nurture is, uh, is really interesting. Take me back to the moment that you were in the car taking the ride and you were entering the house uh, for the first time when you were adopted, if you can remember that. Can you yeah. sort of like describe what was going through your head at that time? Do you remember it? Are you, do you, do you, are you like associated to these memories or do you look at them as like, you know, you're watching a movie, but you don't, you're not necessarily connected to it? You know, it the, the disconnect started happening once the anger went away. That was a big piece of it, but I definitely vividly remember them all. I remember the very first house we went to that was three years old and, and, and talking like, you know, over the years when I was a kid, I had to see therapists because they just, they, they, and you should, um, but I did and it was helpful, but I could unpack the entire like layout of my house and the first house we lived in. I can, I can walk through it in my head still from three, right? So I remember the first house, remember all the houses. Um, and, but the, the final home, I remember going to the house was 47 Bryan Avenue in Antioch, California, down the street from the Jack in the Box. And I remember just going in the house. And when you first enter these environments and these families, you're not going in like, oh, I'm home. You're going in like, ah, another place to go, you know? So I, I literally ran in. I remember walking in. I, I ran in, went to the left. I was like, where am I? Where's my room? And there's my room over here with my brother at the time, Brad, still my brother. And like, I, there's toys there. So I ran to the left and went in the room, started playing with toys. I remember he got mad, like, who's a little black kid playing with my toys? <laughs> so, yeah, right. But I do remember that um, in a sense of it's, it's not like this warm, I'm home feeling. It's just like, I'm at a place. That warmth had to take time to kind of get there. I, I was a crazy little kid. I was told, uh, my mom, I don't remember this part, but I guess I broke like two or three lamps at the house in the first week. Because what most people don't realize is when you're in those situations, you're trying to go home. You're trying to go back to your mom. You want your mom to love you. So you'll do everything you can to be really bad to go back home, which is why the, the foster, you know, the, the, call them the, the social workers, they don't believe the crazy stories because most kids are doing crazy stuff to go back home or just to act out. The only control they have is the control of crazy to ruin the life of the person that's there because they had a bad deal, which I get emotionally. 
So yeah, I remember that, but it wasn't like this warm, like I'm home feeling. It was more of like, oh, here's the next place I'm at. So interesting. Have you, did you connect at that time at all to your mom? Uh, yes and no. My, my real mom's what's called a pathological liar. So she is mental issues for sure. Uh, but she would say things and believe them. So we had these visitations always set up. She it started out like every week we'd go out to Martinez and we you know this little building out there. Uh, we'd meet with her in a room with toys and hang out. And then we, you know, an hour and then social worker takes us back to foster care. And so what happens if, if they miss visitations, they extend the time period between the visitation meetings. So she wouldn't make it. And then she'd call me that night and give me some crazy reason as to why she shouldn't make it. And then, you know, it's like, well, all right, you know, Miss Trucks, you're not making it. So we're going to have to extend this from a week to every two weeks, then be, you know, a month. And then it'll be two months, three months. And it kept extending out. But it was always a crazy story, dude. She'd tell me things like she was a Mensa member and had a meeting or she worked for NASA. One time she owned Apple. Like I'm talking crazy things she was concocting. And then as a kid, when you're six and seven, you believe in your mom. And then she'd always do this one thing that was super just, man, um, I don't, I, I have a lot of anger around the fact that she did it, but I, I understand with a different sense of appreciation and understanding now of her, her position, her plight. But what she used to do is say, hey, pack a bag at eight o'clock. I'm going to come by, hop out the window, get in the car, we're going to take off and live our lives. And so as a kid at like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, you just, it's what you want. I want my mom. I want my mom. I want my mom. And you, every night that she'd miss it, bro, you'd sit by the window. I'd have a backpack and I'd watch cars go. And imagine every time you see lights, your heart racing and then sinking as it drove by again. <sighs> and then eventually I would cry myself to sleep. And up until 14, I would wet the bed every night that it took place. And so... I just eventually at 14, I, I thankfully, I got, I got to the point of like, I'm, it's enough. I had enough of this. And um, at that age, you can kind of choose a little bit more of what your, your path is. And so I went to court. I stood up in front of a whole courtroom in front of her, had a judge. I was in his chambers prior to, I remember all this. And I had to look my mom in her face and say, I no longer want you to be my mom anymore. And I severed her rights. And that's what allowed me to get adopted. And then you become emancipated, I think is the word or something like that, or that's not it. It's not so much an emancipation, but it's more of like a, a relinquishing of the parental rights. So I could sever what's called parental rights. So her parental rights kept me from being adopted. This family wanted to adopt me for years. My mom eventually divorced that first guy after a couple of years and she remarried, who's my dad now, who's actually only 12 years older than me. My dad's only 12 years old. <laughs> it's so interesting. Do you have a connection with your mom now? Uh, my real mom? Yeah. No, man. She, uh, so I, that was like, I cut ties with her at 14. I heard from her again when I was 18. She somehow called my cell phone. I was getting a college scholarship offer. Um, I was going to go to Oregon. I was set to go. And she's like, she called me out of the blue, complete blue out of, a, I don't even know how she got my phone number. Like, Hey, I need a kidney. I'm going to die in six months. If oh you give a God. kidney up, you can't play in college football. You know? So I'm like, I got to go to college. Don't go to college. Come with me in Jacksonville, Florida, give me your kidney. And I, you know, it was hard, but I was like, no. And so I eventually said no. And she lived, you know, it's just one of her crazy things she does again. And uh, the last time I talked to her, I had my son with my high school sweetheart at 20 years old in college, my sophomore year of college. Somehow she had moved about two hours north of me and was called, um, what is it? Uh, Mount St. Helens, Oregon. I was in Eugene. She was in Mount St. Helens with my grandmother. My biological grandmother lived up there apparently. And so she had somehow like found out the school because obviously I'm, I'm on national television playing football now. So she's seeing me and she calls and like, I want to see my grandson. I'd had a son now. And I was like, no, it's the only way you're going to see this child is if you tell me the truth about what took place and why I was put into foster care. Because her entire story was always, well, you know, the government paid my boyfriend $10,000 to beat me up to take you guys. 
And I'm like, I remember you giving me away. I remember where you were staying. I remember all that. Like, that's not the truth. And until you can tell me the truth, you can never be in my life and never heard from her again. Okay. On the flip side, um, you met your biological dad when you were 19. Could you tell 20. me sort of like 20? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell me uh, what sort of led up to you meeting him? So it was a complete accident. So my, my birth certificate uh, says my dad's name is Daniel Patrick O'Byrne, which is an Irish white guy's name. My mom is white. So something went wrong or somebody's lying. Right. So yep. Uh, when my grandma and my mom lived up north, my grandmother was a little more like she's you know old lady, but she was more joyous. And so she had I talked to her, uh, and, and you know her name was Clara Trucks, and she passed away a few years back. And uh, anyway, so she had you know been talking to her, and I was like, hey, and it's a funny thing, my high school sweetheart, like we're cutest couple in the yearbook. I was homecoming king. She's there. She's been with me through all of it. We even had some craziness, which I'm sure you know too. But we get to this point where we're up in college freshman year in a dorm room talking to my grandma, my my fiance, she's my fiance now at 18 years old because I'm a, I'm a young guy like I want to marry this girl and she says ask your grandma what your real dad's name is I'm like no nah, I'm not gonna ask that just, just ask so I asked what's his name grandma goes no 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 I can't but your mom said I could never tell you his name and I was like you know okay and she goes no my wife goes you better ask her again you better press this she knows it figure it out so I press her a couple more times she's okay your dad's last name is a cybovo she spells it out, tells me his first, his first name's Anthony also. They call him Tony. So we go look on a little database in the internet. And lo and behold, there's like three Acibovos in the entire country that live in Marietta, Georgia. And so uh, it's funny. Like, I, I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm worried. Like, do I call this guy? What goes on? My wife, my, my wife, she's, she's like, you better call him. <laughs> so get the number, give him a call. And it's funny because he picks up and it's like, hello, who is this? Like heavy Nigerian accent. And I got a I'm bad Nigerian accent. I'm like, hi, my name is Anthony. I don't know if you know a woman named um, Marie from Concord, California. He goes, no, but I know one from Martinez. Like, and, and so Martinez is neighboring to Concord. He says in 1983, she left me because she said she was pregnant with an Italian man's baby. And, uh, and obviously I was like, well, nope, <laughs> it didn't take place. Um, you know, my name's Anthony. I was born in December of 83 and I think I might be your son. And he kind of paused and he goes, okay. And like, he went into this whole thing and he, you know, didn't know I existed all these years and, and all this kind of crazy. And it's cool the way I met him too. So when I met him, I was in college, obviously, and he lived in Merida, Georgia. And we were going to play Mississippi State, the opening game this next year. And I was what's called a, a true freshman. I never registered. I got into college and I was playing my very first year from high school, which is not a normal thing. I was just a special teams guy. And then I wanted to play linebacker. I wanted to start on defense, but I was against a fifth-year senior. He had redshirted his fifth year, my second year, right? I'm just here. The only way that I was going to be able to start is if I beat this dude out. I went ham, Rob. Like I balled. <laughs> like I wanted this damn spot and I got it, man. So my very first collegiate start took place. Um, I got a game ball. We won the game and I got to beat my dad. We played on national television for the first time. Oh my oh. God. Cool. What, what year? Random question, but I'll explain why in a second. What year was that phone call to your dad? Do you remember? Um, yeah, yeah. That was 2000 and oh, I was still in dorms. It was 2002. Had to be. I graduated O2. It was 2002. Yeah. Okay. I was living in Marietta, Georgia at that oh. time. Is that the craziest shit ever? I went, to chiro I went to chiropractic school and I was a chiropractor for 25 years. That's and I, cool. went to chiro I went to chiropractic school there. That's When you said Marietta, I was like, that ain't that big. Yeah, um, the, the only thing there is the big chicken, the Kentucky fried chicken. That, that's it. <laughs> um, 
they have this giant, like literally, it looks like the size of the Empire State Building, almost like a, a Kentucky mm-hmm. Fried Chicken. It's a, it's a chicken. It's that's it. Well, if that wasn't enough, if my research is correct, it looks like your grandparents committed suicide. My grandfather. That correct. Your yeah. grandfather did. The senior year, my mom, my well, yeah, my adoptive mom's dad. So there's a lot going on, man. So at 14, right, you also didn't share. It's like my mom got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Yeah. You know, ate away at her quick. Like she was in a wheelchair by my senior year. So it was like four years, three, four years. She was already in a wheelchair. So like around that time, my grandfather, he had took off up to Idaho because he just did a tax type stuff, to be honest. I think it's like a tax evasion kind of thing. I don't know. Who knows? Um, but I'd gone to visit him a few times when I was in foster care and like his, you know, his, his, like, you know, his horse and stuff, but he was like the Christian center of the family. Like he was that guy. And I remember we had played against Stanford. I'd come home, we'd play against Stanford. My whole family was there, you know, and we'd all come to visit cool times. And then like, I remember walking out after the locker room, we'd won the game and I kind of walk out and I just, you see the solemnness on everybody's face. And I didn't know what had gone on at all. And my brother kind of says, I need to talk to you. And he pulls me to the side and he says, um, he says last night, uh, grandpa put a gun in his mouth. He took his life. And it was a very unsettling situation because he was, it's like one of those things where like, not, not him, like how, you know, he's the anchor, like he's the guy, he's grandpa, you know? And, and it's just to, to have that dude, the next week really unsettled me. It was the first time that I'd had like this deep, um, deep loss in a way that was like a, a really di- like a, a connected relationship of love. You know, I love this guy. He was my grandpa and to lose him was weird. And the way it took place, it was horrible. And, uh, and yeah, man, just unsettled me. And that, that started the wheels spinning of like, man, this is crazy. Like you just, when you can't wrap your head around something and you try, it spins you up, man. It just really, and so I just, I was unsettled. I had to go home a couple of days during a week. I didn't really, I, I practiced, was kind of aloof and a loss. And it was good. I had a good position coach, Don Pelham, DP, he's down at uh, UCLA now. He's really good at kind of, you know, putting things in perspective, making me understand things. Um, I'm I'm glad that he was my coach when this stuff was going on in that capacity for sure. All right, so I'm sort of like building here to uh, to, to the peak of this mountain. So uh, I want the listener to bear with me because it feels like I, I can't take any more of this. This is this man what he's been through. But there's I promise you there's a, there's a light at the end of this uh, tunnel. You decided that you wanted to go all in on uh, football. Yeah. Uh, from high school to college, and you ultimately wound up playing pro for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, what would you say created the drive to be that good that you could become a pro football player? Was it proving something to yourself that you could do it, or was it your love for the game, or was it a desire that you wanted to have wealth? What, what was the driver for you? You know, it was, uh, I think it's more of like having the world appreciate me. It, what, the thing is, I didn't even think NFL until like my junior year of college. Most people think that as a kid, I was like, I want to play in the NFL. I, it wasn't that at all. It was never a really anchored thought. At one time, my senior year, someone had mentioned like it's possible. I was like, that'd be cool. But it wasn't this thing that settled into my heart. And what it really was, was I played football because it was the first thing that made me feel like I mattered. That was it. When I was in high school, like and I couldn't find my footing or my place getting good at football made people like me and then made people cheer. And I, you know, I got to where I was the guy. And so I carried that on. And then what it always has been, and it currently is in my life is, all right, what's next? You know, like, not that I'm not appreciative of my life and what I have, 
but I, I, I feel like I've beaten so many random odds that I'm like, what, what else can I do? It's like the bonus rounds of life. So football came to this point where it's like, all right, I'm in college and I just want to know what's next. And, and if it's a possibility, I'm going to sell out to do it. And so I, I create this really weird perspective of, I just got to figure out what's the rhythm I got to get into to get to that next tier. And so when I was in high school, it was a certain rhythm to get to college. And in college, it was a certain tick of, you know, whether it's, it's school or practice or, you know, lifting weights at a baby, right? At 20 years old, I had a son. So I'm now a full-time student and I got a kid and I'm all doing all this kind of dynamics, but I'm still pressing and building and growing. You know, I tear my shoulder my sophomore year, unfortunately, but it was always this push to like, make sure I don't fall short of the potential or opportunity in front of me. And so that was really what it was, man. For football, the grind became this thing I fell in love with. And I wasn't worried about the destination. I fell in love with the days. Just there's a, a certain joy I found and find in the monotony that most people are trying to forget and, and avoid and only focus on the end result. I love just the showing up. I love the life of life. You know, it's interesting. I, I can imagine that when you have, you know, sort of like very few people in your corner feeling like you're not worth anything and then having crowds of people cheering for you and regularly cheering for your accomplishment, that must have been so fulfilling. Um, it's you actually, were, it's what? It's actually super awkward. Awkward. Very, Why? Oh, because you're I, unfamiliar with it. So um, to be honest, I, I didn't know how to take a thank or how to appreciate something and, and say thank you properly until I was like my early 30s. Because you had no training in it. It's no training. And it's also this thing the world has always showed you you don't deserve that. The people closest to you haven't you know, showed that your own mom didn't. So I always felt like guilty to get thank yous. And I was like, you guys are wrong. You guys are tripping. I know you're cheering for me, but like, this is just weird. It's wrong, right? It took me a lot of years to get to the point of like, oh no, you're... You deserve that. You're a good guy. You know, it wasn't your fault you were put in foster care. So it is fulfilling, which is, it's interesting. It's a feeling like I like it, but then you're like, oh wait, should you like it? Super interesting dynamic took place inside of me for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's gotta be frying your brain. You were you were traded to the Steelers and then you had an injury that um, effectively ended your career. Did you know that that injury was it for you? Not at first. Or did you try and push through it and rehab it? No, I mean, at first you push through it and try to rehab. And that's the thing is, it's football. It's, uh, it's not for long. NFL is not for long. You know, that's what it stands for. Oh, I never heard that. Of all the NFL players I've interviewed, I've never heard that. That's great. Yeah, you get in, man, you get out. And uh, so it's <laughs> I love that. So when I get there, yeah, you tell your shoulder. So it's my third year. So it was the Buccaneers and the Redskins and the Steelers and the Steelers I got picked up week eight or something in the, on the next year, first preseason game, I tear my shoulder. And I don't know it's the end of my career. The beginning, it's like, ah, it's, it's an injury. I had a right shoulder surgery in college, left shoulder surgery, no problem. But here's what took place. I rehabbed, I kind of got back, started getting workouts the next year. And then my agent says, look, these teams that are flying you in, they'll sign you. The Buffalo Bills wanted to sign me. He's like, they want to bring you in. However, they're only going to bring you in if they put a waiver on your shoulder. A waiver means if you happen to have an injury in that area, no one's covering it. They're not covering it. NFL's not covering it. You're covering it. So if you hurt yourself, you mean, you mean the medical expense, or you're going to be, or you're going to get, you, if you tear it again, you're out of the contract. No, if you tear it, so medical. Well, yeah, you'd be they, they cut you. So, they can, they, so if you get hurt, they have a reason they can cut you. They don't have to keep paying you, and you're the one on the hook for paying for the medical bill. You got to pay for surgery. Which so it's, is a, it's like a pre-existing condition that they have. You know, if like when insurance before Obama changed insurance, if somebody had a heart problem. Mm -hmm. And they tried to get insurance. They'd say, okay, great. We're going to cover everything except the heart. 
Yes, that is. And the problem Same is, thing. if I go out there and hurt my shoulder, and I can't, I can't move my arm anymore. I can't even go home and get a regular job. I wouldn't be able to go and do any kind of job. So the thing was difficult. My agent tells me, he says, either one, you accept this contract and realize like the the really scary position you put yourself and your family into, because of if you if you're handicapped, like you can't can't do anything unless you're going to come up with a hundred grand, which is probably most of your contract to pay for this surgery and be out and pretty much have a, a healthy shoulder, but no money. He's like, or you, you look about hanging it up, man. Like this, this may be the, the end of the road. And uh, I remember I was sitting in like this room and, and it was like this really heavy weight of the realization of this was the end of my road at 13 years of who I was had just, just dissipated into thin air. Every part of who I was in my being had ended, right? I'd given everything to this game and it was gone. And I remember like sitting there as like a grown man, like ugly crying. Cause it's like, you're, I'm mourning something. It was the death of this part of me. And then I was now ushered into this, this world we call the real world. And this thing is crazy. <laughs> like, and you know, it's, it's a weird up and down, but here's the worst part. It was also scary because when you're playing football, you don't have life. You're not given skills of like, I don't have internships out of my belt. I never had a job before. I don't, I don't know how to do anything. You know, it's just, I'm just a guy who used to play football and I, I'm going to get paid to tackle people anymore. Like I'm going to go to jail for doing that. So I got to, I got to find out a new way to make a life. And it was like starting from scratch and it was scary, bro. And it was sad all at the same time. All right. So now here you are, you're faced with, you know, you, you have this, this horrible backgrounds upbringing. You get this gift of being in pro football. The gift is ripped from you effectively. And now you're faced with having to put food on the table for your family. So you decide, I'm going to become a personal trainer. I'm into fitness. You know, I'm good at it. I, I can I can do that. And then that leads into you opening up a gym. And then that sort of becomes this giant time suck for you away from your family. Yeah. And then your wife cheats on you. And it all comes crashing down. So looking back now on that time, what was the lesson for you? Let, let, not the whole lesson with your whole life. Yeah. I want to I stay with just that time because this show is called Work Hard, Play Hard. And a lot of the people that listen to the show, they're entrepreneurs, they're all in on work and they want to do a great job. But even if they love what they do, it's to the detriment sometimes of the connection with their wife and their children because it's all they do. And it sounds like there was a little bit of that going on for you. Maybe you can kind of talk through that. Not a little bit, a lot of it, man. Okay. So, so I came off, it all took place. So now I've, I've uh, I guess the lesson that I impact was when this all took place, man, I, I did. I gave all my all to the gym because I had to find some way to be the guy again. And the best way I could was my degrees in kinesiology. I know sports. I got a little bit of money. Let me open a gym doing something I know how to do. And so I, you know, I, I had a job of like seven days a trainer that I decided to open my own gym. And I had no idea what I was doing. Rob, nine months. No, in, business, was, no business sense. No business sense. No business plan. Never had a gym membership. I mean, you, you, were the, you were the guy who knew how to make pizzas, but you didn't know how to run a pizza business. Yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. And that was it. And I wasn't even good at making pizzas yet. You know what I'm saying? I just knew I could. <laughs> So I start this business and nine months in, I'm looking at bankruptcy and I'm on the hook like quarter million dollars. And I've got, I got nothing. Guys serve me with paper from the landlord to pay or quit in two weeks. Yep. And at the same time, I'm going through the process. Of, I've been at the gym 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. My wife and I had twins. We have three kids. 
she's at home with newborn twins and a four-year-old and I'm gone, legit gone, like non-existent as a husband. And I'm not even making money. So I'm in this weird turmoil trying to find myself and make an excuse. I'm just making these promises too that are getting broken left and right. And it comes to the point where, yeah, man, I, I come to find out on this vacation we took to Hawaii, she sleep with somebody else. Um, I'm out of shape, you know, because I'm just stress eating because of this gym business. I'm not even a present which dad. Is the, which is the irony of the whole thing, right? right? You you do the business to make money to support them and you're into fitness and you wind up becoming overweight and yep. losing the marriage, which is completely the opposite of what you intended exactly. uh, in the beginning, right? Exactly. Um, okay. So then you guys, obviously, I'm assuming that that relationship ended. Yeah. It took a while to end, and it was. And the reason it ended is, and I realized even how it all took place. You asked for the lesson. Here's the lesson: uh, the fruit of the of the tree, right? So, it did fall apart. We did get divorced. We were divorced for three years. Um, that's a whole crazy. I don't know how deep we go, but like someone got shot. We'll put it at that point. We may leave it there. We could pack. You let me know. But um, we get to this well, you point. Can't, where, you can't. You can't leave that fruit dangling. So, well, how we'll, did somebody we'll get, get shot? All right, I'll let you, I'll let you circle back. So the fruit is like the fruit. We all hear the fruits of your labor, like the fruits of your labor or whatever. And the fruit of my labor in my life was football. And when that football was there, like this fruit kind of fell off the tree and then it hit the ground. And then like, you know, we are this fruit. What ends up happening is like, it can last for a bit. It can still be a, a ripe edible fruit. You can go to the store, go to your house. But after a while, sit in your house, it'll eventually rot. And I felt rotten. I felt like that fruit. I'd shriveled and died. And we all feel this way. I lose the job, lose the girl, lose the relate, whatever it is. But then I never realized I was never the fruit. I was always the tree. Mm. The biggest lesson within all of this was like, when we think we're the fruit, we stop taking care of the tree. So all the fruit dies. So when my fruit of football fell off, I stopped taking care of the marriage and myself and the relationship and the parenting. Everything went to, to, to nothing because a tree wasn't getting taken care of. So it's, it's unfortunate, but like we all get to situations where we lose something and we never quite realize the rest of the things it affects because we stop taking care of the tree. And here's the crazy thing. If you go back to the tree and you take care of the tree, you can create more fruit. Like you can create more abundant, bigger fruit if you take care of it right. You give it nutrients, you prune the branches. And I've done that in my life now. But at the time, man, all the fruit was dying. That's such an interesting analogy. You know, it's funny. My dad passed a couple, not funny, but my dad passed a couple of years ago. And I remember somebody asking me about it. And I used an analogy that was similar to yours. And it felt for me at the time, it doesn't any longer, but at the time it felt like my father was the tree that when he died, the tree was knocked down. Mm. Like, I, like I lost the entire tree. So I think that I had the reverse where I sort of viewed the, the tree there, but I love what you're saying, because if you don't take care of the actual tree, it's not going to bear fruit. So that's such a, that's such a great uh, analogy. All right. So let's start, uh, let's, let's start shifting into what you're doing now and how, how you have navigated this, you know, there's, well, I guess before I get into that, let, let me ask you this question. We all, we're all going through life. Nobody knows, you know, why we're going through what we're going through, what, you know, what, what the predetermined destiny of our lives is, the paths that we're on. We're all on different paths. But yours <laughs> arguably has been a hell of a lot worse than so many. How are you not resentful, fucked up, 
um, bitter? Just how are you as stable as you are considering all of that history? Yeah. Well, it's, it's why I do the work I do. <laughs> it's a lot of identity stuff, man. It's, it's, that's kind of what it anchors down to. But to be honest, I was. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was pissed off at the world for a long time. And it wasn't until probably like my late 20s, early 30s that I really got a good, good grasp on like who I am. But to be totally honest, what I realized is the best and worst things in this world are people. Just are like it's 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 how it is unfortunately and and a lot of the things that the the people that are negative end up doing, I think we place the wrong meaning on it and the meaning drives us to a place emotionally that we then operate from in a, a sad way. That's why people get hurt, hurt people. You know, hurt people, hurt people because we've been treated that way. But what I realized was for me, I went back to these things that really were formulative of my identity. Right, what what made me have love, have joy, have anger, all those kind of things. And I looked at my mom. And my real dad, who I found out nine years later, he knew about me the entire time and never never came after me. So like he he told me, I was like, I, I lied to you. He lied to me for nine years that I knew him, right? And I, I had him go, that go on, my wife, I had people steal from me in business, just a lot of things. And when I took this look at it, and it happened like around 2016, actually, I want to say, it's kind of when this, this heavy realization settled in, was a lot of people in life, they do these things that we assume are malicious to us. You assume like I, people assume my wife cheated on me to get to get back at me. People assume that my mom gave me away for whatever reason, or my dad just, or the people stealing from me. And we feel like even when they happens, we get pissed. How can you do this to me, right? And what I realized was most people they're not doing it to you; they're doing it for them. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna lost you again. Mm-hmm. No, I got it. I so got when, it. When you're mo- doing mo- it, most people they're doing it yeah. not to you, but for them. Yeah. And then what happens is if anything, there's being selfish and they're not thinking about you, but it's not a malicious thing. And then I realized, okay, well, if they're doing it for them, why would they be doing it for them? Or why would they be doing it all? And I realized people just, they're just not given the tools somewhere along the lines. They didn't, they weren't given the, the perspective, the tools, the heart, the mentality to, to navigate the situation they're doing. Unfortunately, the best they can one, or they're doing what they can to alleviate their pain. My wife, her parents never taught her to navigate these situations. She wasn't raised like in hardship. So she didn't know how to navigate tough conversations. So her solution was, I need someone to fulfill my needs. My husband's kind of got these kids. I need to fill the gap. It wasn't, I want Anthony to feel bad. It was like, I need to feel good. My mom was like, I don't know how to navigate this world with four kids. Like, just go away, right? My dad was like, well, I got these other kids. He has two other kids. I need to take care of them. I do this thing. The guy stealing from me was stealing because he needed to pay bills. It's like, you find right. like, damn. It's not that I'm saying it's okay because it's never okay to do what was done. But then the compassionate human of me said, if I care about people, which I do care about people, outside of what this person did to me, if I'd met them and I didn't know them, what does the compassionate heart of me need this person to know or learn or improve upon? And it gave me a chance to create a space for first forgiveness, then help. It's so interesting because your lesson is around compassion and not anger. You you went down a completely different road. And I'm assuming that it's just the repetitive exposure to all of these things over and over again that allowed you to see patterns and yeah. why people were doing what they do, which is allowing you to navigate it uh, differently. Yeah. You know, you've you've uh, you've said that success only happens when you are to your core, your identity. And when your goals align with your life's vision, can you sort of unpack for me what you mean by that a bit more? Yeah. So, I mean, the life vision, unfortunately, some people don't see far enough down the path of what could be. So the vision that people have for life first is it isn't enticing enough to them. 
they, they, they dream at a level that they think is possible and most people don't think a lot's possible, sadly. The visionaries are the ones that create something that's why they do something because they can see that far. But even if you had a great vision, the problem is if you don't see yourself as that person, you will always run into a wall that stops you. And, and that wall is what I call an identity wall. I'm not the person who makes a website. I'm not the person who starts a podcast. I'm not the person that asks for that girl's phone number. I'm not the person that gets a promotion. And not that we say it verbally, but we feel that and we act from that emotion. And so when I look at the core of Anthony and what's allowed me to get here, I say identity and it loses people. Think of it more like rhythm. There's a rhythm to how like a song flows and the tempo is and the beat goes. Some songs are amazing. The tempo, the, the rhythm is beautiful and you just lean into it and it feels good. Some songs are all over the damn place and some songs have a high beat per minute and a low beat. A lot of people's rhythm in life, unfortunately, is it's slow and it's out of whack. It's like a 10-year-old just got a drum set. Ba-dum, 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 all over the place. And it's slow, so they don't get much done. And they feel like, ah, nobody enjoys the rhythm of my life. Nobody enjoys it. They don't even enjoy it, right? What I found over time was like that identity is that flow behind the scenes. It's the things that you're not consciously thinking about. It's how you handle hardships, how you attack those situations, how you see opportunity or don't see opportunity. What do you do when somebody cuts you off? What do you do when you make a bunch of money? What do you do? Who are you? You're not thinking about it, which is your rhythm. And so for me, I went through so many different situations. I found a way to get to a flow for how my entire life, every day, all day is in a different rhythm. And if I want something more, I understand how to go after it in a different way. And then I have a vision of what I see. And so, and if you can get to a kind of a, a different understanding of how to program that thing, how to operate that thing, it'll control your life in an amazing way. And so for me, when I, when I work with people and I even step in this conversation identity right now, I'm sure people, you're probably like, ah, bring it down to earth, right? People are probably thinking, bring it to earth. Here's, I'm going to bring it to earth for you. You're living a life and you have been being somebody every day, every day of your life. You've been being somebody. And that being has become who you are right now. And that's who has everything that you have, the house, the money, the cars, the happiness, joy, because you've been being somebody every day. And if you want to have more at the back end, you have to become somebody different. Same you, but become happier, become more joyful, become capable, become more skilled. It only happens from your being every day, your rhythm. And so if you want to achieve more, yeah, you can get more information, but it's kind of like saying, all right, I got all this stuff. People, I, the, 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 I think we're in an epidemic of shelf esteem right now. It's buy the books, listen to the podcast, put on the shelf and feel good about myself, but never open the book. Therefore, never apply the concept. Therefore, never get the benefit. And so for me, a lot of the things that I do is I step into people's worlds and I teach them how to be able to get to the next level of being on a daily basis to become that person who has everything they want in life later. You know, it's interesting. Tony Robbins has said the most powerful force in the human psyche is people's need to remain consistent with their identity. Yeah. So basically how we define ourselves. If I'm going to, you know, if, if no knock to shoe salesman, but if, I'm, if, if my identity is I'm a shoe salesman, then there's a certain bandwidth within that shoe salesman that I'm going to behave within. So I love how you're using the, uh, the term identity to do it. Do you have any strategies for people that are you know, saying, well, okay, I, I'm, I'm definitely playing small. I want to play bigger. I, I, he's right. I need to, I need to yeah. shift my identity. You know, what's, like, what's something yeah. I can do to step into that? Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, I have my a full in-depth. So I went through the science and this before. When I, so when I started figuring out where my strength is, my weird superpower, I was like, I got to make this tangible. My story's great, but the only good part of it for somebody else, yourself, is going to be what can I take from this? So yeah. I have full coaching programs, but everything dials into this one thing that we do 
every day. It's, it's, if I talk about rhythm, rhythm is what you do consistently all day, every day. And I started realizing that for a lot of people, they, they don't uh, intentionally think about who they're being. They'll borrow habits from Rob. They'll borrow habits from you know Kim. They'll borrow habits from Anthony. And then what they end up doing is like just doing these things. They get to midlife and go, I don't know who I am. Well, yeah, because you were borrowing these things. You never thought about who you were and you never planned it. You started doing things, but then you realize it's not really in line. The job your parents told you to get, the relationship you're in because you know, you've been in it for a while. So what I do is, okay, I call it shift because my whole thing is to shift your identity by shifting the, the, the level at which you, you rhythm, right? The level that you operate. And so it's you do every single day. I look at it as this S-H-I-F-T. If you can do these things every day and find your own, there's some thinking, a ton of thinking behind how we build into this for people. But the first S is like, how do you start your day? Like, are you starting right? This is the routine. I, people have such a, um, a like a, a craziness in their heart right now. Like, Anthony, what do I do in this crazy hiatus of the world? Take control of the controllables. It's the only way you find a little sense of peace and grounding. Start your day right, man. I get my workout. I get my oatmeal. I get my tea. I get my hard-boiled eggs. I, I just, I settle in. I'm in control of the seat right now, right? That's gotta, get that, gotta get that oatmeal in the morning. Gotta get, I got the bowl right here. I'm not, I'm still <laughs> you know I'm So like, start right. And then once you start right, the next H is like, take, do a healthy activity. Like do something that's, in, and I'm not saying do a crazy like workout every day, like I do whatever you want to do, but I'm like healthy. If you eat out three times a, week, a day, like make it once. Make, you know what I'm saying? Stop smoking one cigarette. Do something that's a healthy progression because there's something to doing a healthy progression that makes you feel better about your body, which turns into building better about yourself at a soul and mental level. The I, every day I believe we need to do an imperative activity towards the direction of our dreams. I think some people go through life and like, I have this dream and a week goes by and I took no action. I feel crappy because I took no action. Now, I'm not saying every day go and you know try and jump off the Empire State Building and you know and do like a skydive thing like that's a big one, but choosing it, what must be done today to move you closer, even if it's a half a millimeter closer, what's that one imperative activity that's got to be done right? What did the IA find that? Do that every day and momentum builds, man, little by little by little. And then for me, the F is did you where have you found joy? I, I look at my life and I find we have a lot of these moments where things just, how oh, they suck. And people wonder, why am I so happy? Because I go looking for something and I find it. I, mm. My wife has a business. I'm the handyman. I just, I'm good with my hands. I build things. And so literally like, I don't always like doing stuff for her. I got to drive into her, one of her group home businesses, a couple you know towns over, but I find joy. You know what? Like my joy is sometimes I'm going to put a cool playlist on and sing on the way there in the car. And then I'm going to have headphones. I'm going to get to listen to an audiobook while I'm doing the handyman work. I found joy in that moment. So when I get to the back end of my day, I have a collection, even in sucky moments, of areas that I found joy. And so if I do that every day, man, you start being more appreciative. You find more gratitude. The world's just brighter. And the last one's called a tree task. This actually ties into the, the tree concept. I have a whole work through of this. I call it roots and fruits. I believe in life, we have roots that anchor us to create the fruits in our life. And if the storms of life come and the roots are deep, it can withstand the storm and it can make fruit. If not, it gets uprooted, thrown across town, tree dies, right? So what I do is I have people go through these 10 areas of life and I say, okay, if we were to write this crazy cool picture of like, what's this, the, the, the tree task, what's the future, right? The roots and fruits future. If we were to extrapolate this, what could be an amazing future for all of these? And then what we do is say, what is one thing you can do in that area over the next 30 days that would move it one tick closer. We have it numerically like one through 10. What's one little thing? It could be calling your mom, you know, on Monday, every Monday. Uh, It could be, you know, reading the Bible. It could be, um, you know, handling an emotional moment a little bit better. What did you do that day that was one tree task? 
So every day, these things are pre-thought out, but now I get a daily check thing I'm doing that puts me into a rhythm. It's pre-planned because now we're actually crafting beforehand like what I call your ideal identity. And so anybody that's sitting there like, how do this every single day? Think about who you want to become. Then think about what's a good routine. How would I start the day right? What is something I could do for health? What's the imperative activity? Where can I find joy? And what can I do as a, like a, a tree task, which for me would be, what can be one thing you can do to be closer toward the identity you want? Because like you said, the human need is to be in line with the identity, but not the one that you have now. Like you're not stuck at this identity. It was programmed. When you were a kid by your teachers, preachers, coaches, everybody taught us different things. And we've been using that programming like a computer programming all of our life. But right now we're in a point where it's like, you're a brand new hardware computer waking up in 2021, but you got Windows 95 running your life. And so if you yeah, want to get- Yeah, you know, when you, when you, you think go. about- when you, sorry, when you think about identity, which th- this, I love shift because it's, it's actionable. You could, you could literally, when, when the, uh, when, when the shit hits the, sh- when the shit hits the fan, you could shift and you can go S H and you could just, even if you grabbed one of those things and you yeah. didn't, you weren't able to like, you weren't in the place where you can go, you know, shifting gears all the way down the line. Even if you grabbed one, it's going to make uh, a measurable difference. But you know, while you were speaking about identity, one thing hit me. In this uh, in this time that we're in right now, if you if you call yourself a Democrat, you, well, you're inside of that Democratic box, right? The identity of a Democrat. You call yourself a Republican, you're in that box too. Which yeah. is why nobody can shift out of that Democratic or Republican box because of their identity, right? Yeah. It's ego. Well, the identity is there, but the ego attached to it won't let you do that. You can still let it happen. Your ego is like, no, I can't do that because I'd lose faith and I'd lose, you know, so that's kind of the the ego is a whole different conversation, but it's part of the process for sure. All right. So as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you some random questions. Just roll with it. First thing that comes to your mind. Ready? All right. I'm ready. What's on your nightstands? Uh, Books. I got books and a knife. I have like a a dual action knife on my bedstand. So if people want to break it in my house, they can't kill me before I get to my gun. (laughs) Oh, that's so interesting. I never heard that one before. Um, what do people often get wrong about you? Uh, they think that I am a, a big, black, quiet, like, you know, mean guy. They get the fact wrong that I'm a very happy, joyous. I got a good switch, but I'm a really happy guy. <laughs> what's the things that, what are the things that you do that's hard as shit, but totally worth it? Give me one thing that you do that this is hard as shit, but it's worth it. Uh, I apologize to my kids when I'm wrong. That they're like uh, my, my. I need my kids to have self-respect, and we all do. And my kids, if they don't feel respected by at least the core person in their life, I don't feel like they have that going into the world. So if I make a mistake, and they know that I made the mistake, and I go, whatever, I'm just dad. I've ruined and sh- I think shaped incorrectly their self-esteem. So if I'm wrong, I'll go back there and in even heated arguments, like, all right, hey, look, I realize it wasn't you. I messed up. I should have yelled at you. Truly, I'm sorry. My bad. So it's hard emotionally, but it's it's powerful to do. What's an unusual or absurd thing that you love? Um, that I love? Uh, I love tea, man. I don't drink coffee. I'm, a, I'm like, I got a, like a, a cast iron tea set. I test the teas over at the tea spot, bro. I'm a, I'm a tea guy, bro. <laughs> that's, a, that's unusual, unless you live in London. Um, <laughs> if you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? If I could spend one month, it would be locked. We've already done this. I'd be locked away with my kids and my wife in uh, in some, we'll call it like a cabin up in maybe Tahoe, anywhere away from off the grid. I, I love my family and uh, and I, it doesn't matter where I'm at as long as they're all there. Are you remarried to the ex? 
Yeah, man. We went through craziness. The, the whole thing. I, I ended up shooting one of her ex-boyfriends that came to the house drunk trying to, <laughs> trying to fight me. And he came in. I, I told him multiple times and he tried to break into that. He literally kicked in the door and came in. So I shot him in his leg. But yeah, we went through some craziness. However, we both grew immensely, amazingly. There's a whole other story there. But we're remarried in an amazing marriage. Dude, I, I love my wife. I go through it seven times again to get back to where we're at. Man, I never want to meet your wife. If I find her attractive, I'm gonna get a. I'm gonna either get a knife or I'm gonna get a gun. That's coming. That's- <laughs> nah, nah, nah. <laughs> what did people never ask you, but you wish they did? You really never asked me what I did. Uh, my why? I think people never ask my why, man. They, they see what I do and they they find joy in it. Um, but why I do what I do is a deeper thing. We don't have to get into, but really, it's a promise. But I made I made two promises to my mom before she passed away in, in 2014 from MS. It was a promise that I would fix my life that was broken at the time. And then the second thing was that I would I would give back to the world the way she gave to me unconditionally to create the person I am. Uh, so I'm, I'm making good in the second promise for the rest of my life with joy. Love it. Last question. We're going to change it up. What one question would you like to ask me? Uh, you, question I'd ask you is, how do you get your hair to look like that, bro? I, I can't do that with my hair. Listen, it's a lot of gel. It, it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. Let me tell you, it's a lot. Of, <laughs> it's a lot of gel. It's a lot of blow drying. It's I got, I got, uh, I got, I got like Elton John's hairdresser on standby. I mean, you have no idea what I got going. Like Johnny Bravo, remember Johnny Bravo? <laughs> Looking good, dude. It's funny. My brother says hey, you look like Bob's big boy. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, listen. This has been um, absolutely incredible um, for people. Uh, it, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people that are listening? Um, you know, I just, I'm always about making own their shift, man. That's the big thing. It starts, all the stuff starts with owning the fact that you have something to do. Own that there's a thing you got to work on. Actually, you're, realize you're the one responsible for getting that thing done, your fault or not, and then shift. Do the work necessary to make that thing change, and it'll be worth it in the end. Always is. Beautiful, brother. It was great connecting with you. I loved it, and everybody else will too. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.